Hello, and welcome to the Original Jurisdiction Podcast. I'm your host, David Latt, author of a Substack newsletter about law and the legal profession, also named Original Jurisdiction, which you can read and subscribe to by visiting davidlatt.substack.com. You're listening to the 19th episode of this podcast, recorded on Monday, May 8th. I post episodes every other Wednesday. A big thanks to this podcast sponsor, NextFirm. NextFirm helps big law attorneys become founding partners. To learn more about how NextFirm can help you launch your firm, call 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com. Want to know who the guest will be for the next Original Jurisdiction podcast? Follow NextFirm on LinkedIn for a preview. My guest today is Professor Nadine Strassen, one of the nation's foremost authorities on free speech and civil liberties. From 1991 to 2008, she served as president of the American Civil Liberties Union, or ACLU. She taught constitutional law for many years at New York Law School, where she was the John Marshall Harlan II Professor of Law, and she is the author of the 2018 book, Hate, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship. Her latest book, Free Speech, What Everyone Needs to Know, will be published this fall. In our conversation, Nadine and I discussed her fascinating family background, including the fact that her father was a Holocaust survivor, her early legal career, which included time in big law at Sullivan and Cromwell, and her book about hate speech, including how the debate over hate speech has evolved in recent years. We also engage in a debate of our own over free speech, in which I played the role of devil's advocate, arguing in favor of speech restrictions. Without further ado, here's my interview of Nadine Strassen. Nadine, thank you so much for joining me. David, thank you so much for having me on your terrific podcast. So let's start at the beginning. So I'm recording this in New Jersey. I believe you were born in the Fine Garden State? Yes, in the former Margaret Haig Hospital, which I understand no longer exists. My father had been a refugee to the United States after World War II. He was born in Berlin and was in a forced labor camp at Buchenwald, was liberated by Americans, came to the great melting pot of New Jersey, where he met my mother in the great melting pot of Wall Street. So I began my life in New Jersey with a father who commuted to New York for work. And were either of your parents lawyers? What were their professional backgrounds? No, David, my mother was very undereducated for a very bright person. She was raised by a father, an immigrant to the United States, who had very old world ideas about gender and work and made it very hard for my mother to pursue education after high school. So she didn't. She became a secretary, and that's how she met my father. That was one good thing that came out of that. My father, who had always wanted to be a doctor, was not allowed to study medicine because of his Jewish ancestry. And when he escaped, came to the United States, he had to, his first priority was to earn a living and also including sending money back to some of his surviving relatives. Many had been killed in the Holocaust, but some survived. So he earned his living in taking advantage of his chemical background, which he had intended to apply toward medical school, went into the corporate world and hated it. Both my parents basically disliked what they were doing. They were wonderful parents 
but they made it very clear to my brother and me that their priority was to make sure that we had every educational opportunity that would enable us to pursue whatever we were interested in. And that was especially impressive coming from my mother. This was the 1950s, you know, where the quintessential era of the housewives and very few middle-class white women, which my mother was, worked outside the home. And yet she had a vision that she constantly drummed into me that I could be whatever I wanted to be. So you certainly are very educated. You have two Harvard degrees. Tell us, though, was there anything in your childhood or upbringing that hinted that you might become a lawyer eventually? David, really not. And I tell this story with great humility about myself and the most enormous respect for women who centuries ago decided that they were going to be lawyers, even though that was even against the law in many jurisdictions until shockingly recently, right? The 19th century, the Supreme Court upheld bars on women practicing law. But I was not that kind of pathbreaker. It wasn't until I actually met a woman who was a lawyer, which did not happen until I was in college, that a light bulb went off in my head. Oh, I can do that too. And I have learned from that not to be afraid so much to have the emperor's new clothes attitude and to try to follow in the wake of those who didn't need any mentors. But I would have been an advocate. There's no doubt about that. And I certainly would have been an advocate for free speech and human rights. That was something that I started doing without a legal education, indeed, without much education at all when I was a young kid in in school. So tell us about that, actually. Certainly, I think your family history, the fact that your father and other relatives of yours were Holocaust survivors or not survivors. How do you first get into free speech, civil liberties, and that whole area of law? I have to say law became a tool that I was able to integrate into my prior advocacy in support of free speech. You know, the first organized effort that I undertook, I was about 15 years old, and I advocated on behalf of a teacher whose speech was being attacked in the local news media. I grew up, my father was transferred from New Jersey. I grew up in a suburb of Minneapolis. And in an excellent suburban school, the local paper was very critical of an exercise that teachers had provided to students, or I should say material that they had provided, laying out some images of the Vietnam War that were disturbing. There was no verbal commentary other than some folk songs playing along in the background, but that was seen as being unpatriotic and, you know, dissenting at a time when the Vietnam War was still very popular and when members of the community had relatives who were being killed in Vietnam. There was a critical article about these teachers suggesting that they should be punished if not fired in a local paper. I I wrote an early letter to the editor, not my very first, but one of the first, responding to that commentary. And I organized a petition drive among fellow students in support of the teacher. And I don't know if I even used the term free speech, but certainly that was the concept. So when I discovered that there were legal tools that could actually protect these rights and that there are organizations such as the ACLU that are committed to 
actually defending those rights. It was a match made in heaven. And the minute I got out of law school, one of the first things I did was to volunteer to be an ACLU lawyer. So going back to the situation involving the teacher, do you recall what the outcome was? Was the teacher disciplined or punished? I hope not. Fortunately, that did not happen. And maybe my letter and petition played a little role in that. I've never thought about it. What did you study when you were at Harvard for your undergraduate years? Uh, For my undergraduate years, I majored, it was a special blended major called history and literature and, you know, completely useless, I guess, in terms of, you know, today, maybe I would major in a STEM field. But I say that actually sardonically. I don't mean it, David, because there's no doubt that the engagement with the texts and with the interpretations is essential for developing or certainly can develop critical analysis and inquiry, which is so essential, not only in the legal profession, but for being an informed and engaged citizen and for being an effective advocate. Were you involved in any kind of activism or protest in either college or law school? Yes. Throughout my college career, when I was very involved in the anti-Vietnam War movement, in fact, even as a high school student, I was a debater, a very successful debater. Hopkins High School was the state champion two years in a row. I was on the state championship team. And maybe for that reason, I was invited to participate in debates about the Vietnam War at high school assemblies around the Twin Cities and even beyond. And I was always fervently, I suppose if you had assigned me to debate the other side, I certainly could have, but they gave me the luxury of advocating for what was then still an unpopular position against the war. And I continued with my anti-war activism in college. Wow, that's really interesting. And I'm fascinated that you were involved also in the anti-war movement because I think it's a healthy reminder. A lot of people who are opposed to free speech on campuses today say, well, you want to deny us speech if you won't let us shout down people. How would you have felt about the anti-war protesters who were in a very fine tradition and you were one of those protesters? So I find that very interesting. And I also came of age during the civil rights movement. I was a little bit too young to be a freedom marcher, but I I followed it in the media and I was absolutely passionately committed from the get-go to racial equality. I don't think that my personal experience, you know, my family's background was relevant at that point, David, because my father was a typical, all too typical Holocaust survivor who did not talk about his experiences at all. And I didn't even learn that he was a Holocaust survivor until much later in my life. So in that sense, I can say it was truly, you know, not out of any personal stake, but just really committed to the notion of equality and really appalled at the idea of any kind of discrimination based on who you are. You know, on the other side of my family, I had been raised on stories about how my grandfather, you know, everybody is so complicated. I said I didn't like his ideas on gender, but he was also a conscientious objector during World War One after he had emigrated to this country and punished very severely for that. He was literally prosecuted, convicted, and in a courthouse in Hudson County, New Jersey, he was sentenced, and the sentence was to stand outside the court 
courthouse with his feet and hands splayed against the wall, his back facing passersby so that they could spit on him. You know, and so I was raised with that kind of story. And I also thought, you know, what I would now say that no matter who you are and no matter what you believe, you are entitled to certain fundamental rights. And that has been my credo since as far back as I can remember. And I'm attracted to organizations such as the ACLU and Human Rights Watch and others that make that their underlying goal. Now, you know, Free speech is not something that I consciously have elevated above the other rights. I'm equally passionately committed to the whole roster of all fundamental freedoms for all people. And in the past, I've written about a lot of them that have been particularly under siege, including religious freedom and reproductive freedom and due process and a number of others. But In the past half dozen or so years, I have seen freedom of speech being increasingly subject to attack from both ends of the political spectrum. And I have become more convinced than ever that freedom of speech is the absolutely essential bedrock for every other freedom, for every other human right, for that matter, for any other cause whatsoever, and that censorship is the most effective way to suppress any other cause. I think you heard me say I continue to believe, maybe I didn't say that, that's the way I think about it and the way I usually phrase it, I continue to believe that freedom of speech is the most essential bedrock for every other cause, including human rights. So that's interesting. You talk about that in your book also, that there are limits even under the First Amendment to what we regard as acceptable speech. Going back to your bio, though, when you went to law school, you obviously had a great passion for a lot of civil rights, civil liberties, various causes, civil rights, certainly the anti-war movement. What was your thinking in going to law school? Did you think you were going to use that to advocate on behalf of certain causes that you held dear? You know, I was involved in just about every student organization that was within the general realm of human rights while I was a law student. So I was involved in not only the Legal Aid Bureau, which provided legal services to poor people, because to me that was a matter of equal justice under the law. I was involved with the Harvard Voluntary Defenders, which were providing voluntary assistance to people who were accused of crimes. I was involved in the Prisoners Legal Assistance Project, the Women's Law Project, you name it. Then I was also on the Law Review, and I wrote about constitutional rights, civil liberties issues for that. And when I graduated from law school, I wanted to develop my legal skills, and I felt that I would be able to do that better in private practice than in underfunded public interest organizations. And I think that actually was the case in my initial legal job. I did a judicial clerkship for a year back home in Minnesota. I had been away for seven years for higher education, but I was really homesick and wanted to go back. I didn't 
know the legal community there, so I took the one-year clerkship with the Minnesota Supreme Court as a way of deciding where I would go from there. And I chose a law firm that really did give an enormous amount of practical experience to a very young associate. I remember in my first day on the job, one of the clients of the firm was the Minneapolis School Board. And the first day, the lawyer who was the main representative of the school board walked into my office with a stack of files. And he said, these are the background materials for a series of hearings at which you'll be representing school board tomorrow. And that was typical. I argued several cases in the Minnesota Supreme Court during my first year on the job. And it really was great. But I also had enough time or enough bandwidth and getting to one of your later questions, enough waking hours, doing very little sleeping, that I immediately also became involved in pro bono activities, kind of following my path in law school, including the ACLU's what we call state-based affiliate in Minnesota, the Minnesota Civil Liberties Union, and started handling cases for the MCLU as a volunteer lawyer, and I was elected to its board, so was involved in deciding which cases we would hear. I was also involved in other organizations, including e even party politics and local good government groups. And then, David, when I decided to move to New York, which I thought was just going to be a temporary move because I had always wanted to live in New York for a while and experience practicing law there, which I thought would be very different from what I had experienced in Minnesota. I decided to go to Sullivan and Cromwell. It was like the antithesis of the law firm that I was in in Minnesota in many ways, but that was deliberate. I'm always looking for different perspectives and different experiences. So I wanted the quintessential New York Wall Street experience. I went to Sullivan and Cromwell and I knew that the hours there would be much more demanding than I had been used to in Minnesota. And I was never going to give up all of my pro bono activities, but I realized I would have to select one. I was also involved in the women's movement, I should say, very actively. I was head of the local chapter of the Women's Political Caucus. So out of all those other organizations, it was not even debatable that if I had to reduce my activities to one, it would be the Civil Liberties Union. Again, because I see the work that defending civil liberties and fundamental human rights as being the bedrock for all of the other organizations. They couldn't do their work. They couldn't be effective in their advocacy without those fundamental rights. What was the firm that you were at in Minnesota? It no longer exists, sadly, as with many smaller firms. They've just been gobbled up by mergers. It was called Lindquist and Venom. It was a Oh, one- yes. You've heard of it. Yes, they were certainly around when I graduated law school and yeah. for a number of years after. And they were actually yeah. a fairly sizable firm, actually. They grew, yeah. I mean, when I was there, the founding partners, named partners, Leonard Lindquist and Tom Venom were still there. And they were a very public-spirited firm. So what led you to move to New York? You mentioned you'd always want to live there. It seems like a very dramatic change. And then you went right into the belly of the beast working at S&C. Was there a personal reason you went to New York? As I mentioned, I was born in New Jersey outside of New York City to a mother, I didn't mention this, who had grown up in New Jersey and, you know, just loved New York. I did mention she met my father when she was working on Wall Street. And when he was transferred to Minnesota, it was very wrenching for her. She really was very homesick for New York and would take 
myself and my brother there a couple of times a year for business. And I was in love with New York too. And I really missed Minnesota and its liberal, progressive, open spirit. And I thought it would be the best place to begin my career as a lawyer. I thought I didn't want to carry somebody else's briefcase. I was right about that. And I could, you know, very quickly become a leader in the public interest organizations in a way that I don't think would have been so easy in such a big city. But I mentioned that I had an ambition to be the best lawyer that I could be. That's why I went into private practice. And I knew that the law school classmates that I was keeping in touch with were working such long hours. So by definition, they were getting more experience than I was. (laughs) And secondly, quite frankly, the students who were the most successful in law school and the most brilliant were all going to these firms. And so I thought, you know, not only will I have more experience in terms of the number of hours, the number of cases and, you know, skills that I am exposed to, but I'm also going to be working with the most talented, most brilliant lawyers from the most prestigious law schools and so forth. So I really thought it would be a way of honing my professional skills that I could then continue to devote it to, you know, at least part-time and then perhaps ultimately full-time to civil liberties clients. And I had an excellent experience in many ways at Sullivan and Cromwell. One of the reasons I went there was it had the reputation, at least at the time, I haven't followed this, at the time it had a reputation of thinly staffing its cases. And sure enough, you know, I had a similar experience to what I had in Minneapolis. Now, in fairness, I had practiced for two years at that point, but still, my very first assignment was to second chair a trial. I mean, how often does this happen? And the partner in charge, wonderful man, I had lunch yesterday with his widow. His name was Marvin Schwartz. Marvin, he had never worked with me before. I had just joined the firm, but I will never forget He said to me, Nadine, you can do the director cross-examination of whichever witnesses you want. And I had other trial experience where I was the first chair. I represented this little, I mean, then it was a very significant company, now maybe less so, but Hewlett Packard, you know, when it was at the top of the tech sector. And so I had great experience. And by the way, that was the reputation of S&C at the time. They also had the reputation of being very generous about allowing and even encouraging young lawyers to do pro bono work. So as I took my recommendations from the Minnesota Civil Liberties Union to the National Office of the ACLU, and I immediately became involved in working on, among other things, ACLU amicus briefs to the Supreme Court. And I remember one of my friends and colleagues at Sullivan and Cromwell, a young associate, was passionately committed to reproductive freedom. And the firm actually gave her a three-month leave of absence during which they were paying her salary, and she was a full-time volunteer for the Reproductive Freedom Project at the ACLU. So I ended up liking it in a more ongoing way than I would have predicted. I thought it was just going to be for a different kind of professional training. This podcast is being sponsored by NextFirm. If you have wondered whether launching a law firm could be the next best step for your career, NextFirm has the experience and expertise to help. Contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com today to learn more. And don't forget to follow NextFirm on LinkedIn for updates on future original jurisdiction guests.
And then how did you make the transition from Sullivan and Cromwell to both the ACLU, which you led for many years, and also academia? You were a professor, and I believe perhaps you still are a professor at New York Law School. David, many people are shocked to learn that the president, the national president of the National ACLU is an unpaid volunteer. I did not know that. (laughs) Many ACLU members do not know that. So I just continued. I started the minute I got out of law school, I became a volunteer lawyer who was volunteering her services to the ACLU. And that has continued, including throughout my 18-year presidency. I had a different title, but I was still a volunteer. Now, in fairness, I was an extremely active president. And people should know that we have a CEO. See, I still say we, (laughs) I still completely identify with ACLU. We have a paid CEO who for many years now has been Anthony Romero. The title is executive director. The ACLU uses the title president for what is in effect the chair of the board. But I was extremely active and not only in presiding all of the meetings and internal matters for the organization, which are very time consuming as a board of directors traditionally grapples with, but I was also very active as an outside spokesperson, media testifying before Congress, public speaking, which I loved very much. And I did all of that while earning my living as a lawyer. And by the time I became ACLU president, I was earning my living as a law professor. I had transitioned from private practice to being a professor in 1983. And that was a nice coincidence because I think it was much easier to juggle the intense ACLU responsibilities with a law professor's job rather than being in private practice. You know, one works extremely hard as a law professor, but one can do it much more on one's own time and not having to constantly be at the behest of clients and judges. Do you still teach? I gave up full-time teaching, and it was a sacrifice because I loved teaching. My students loved me. It was a mutually approving relationship. I gave it up at the end of 2019, David, because I was getting more and more invitations to speak all over the United States and many other countries as well about the increasing crisis of illiberalism from both ends of the political spectrum. And I really did see it as a crisis. As one gets older, one tries to husband one's remaining time, perhaps even more than in earlier years. And I just felt that this is the most important clause, even more important than teaching my students about the dormant commerce clause, if you could imagine. So let's turn to that then. You wrote your book, The Dormant Commerce Clause. <laughs> well, there's a big case about that, I believe, about the California pork producers or what have you. But turning to your book, Hate, which was published in 2018, and the subtitle is Why We Should Resist It, meaning hate, with free speech, not censorship. What led you to write that book? Was it this sense of a concern about the growing illiberalism in our country or in the academy? What led you to write the book? Starting in 2014 with the killing of Michael Brown, 
there was a very strong growth of an anti-racism, anti-police abuse movement on campuses and in other venues around the country, which to me was wonderful. I want to start with the positive. Early on in my ACLU presidency, we witnessed something that I hope is still familiar to, even though it's a matter of history to you and other younger people, the beating of Rodney King by yes. Los Angeles Police Department officers. That was historic because back then it was unusual to have this kind of violence captured on videotape. The ACLU had been crusading against police abuse forever and against racism in the criminal justice system forever. And the tragedy of that videotaped beating galvanized what we hoped would be very significant reforms. I think there were some reforms, but it was disappointing. So to me, it was really thrilling, you know, past due time that we would see, especially on campus, such activism about these problems that clearly had not gone away. Because studies showed that in the intervening decades between when I got out of law school in the 60s and 70s, when students were very active, for a number of decades after that, surveys showed that students weren't even interested in following the news. They weren't even interested in current events, let alone committed to being involved in trying to have an impact themselves. So my initial and continuing reaction to the student activism that began in 2014 is to emphasize the positive. It's wonderful that so many young people are so committed to justice, so committed to equal rights, so committed to human rights, all very positive. But fairly quickly, it became clear that too many of the student activists were viewing freedom of speech as their enemy rather than what I continue to believe it to be, their time-tested ally. You may recall at the University of Missouri itself, right near the Michael Brown tragedy, there were student protesters in favor of racial justice against police brutality who set up an encampment on the Mizzou campus, and they physically excluded members of the press, including student journalists, and famously or infamously, a faculty member in the journalism department physically assaulted and muscled out a member of the student press. And then one started hearing even more than usual pronouncements that hate speech is not free speech. And I also did a lot of debates about the issue because starting back in 1977 and 78, when the ACLU was defending free speech for Nazis to demonstrate in Skokie, Illinois. I was still living in Minneapolis. I was a a, a volunteer lawyer and a board member of the Minnesota Civil Liberties Union. I wasn't a national leader, but I was constantly drawn into debates, which were roiling throughout the ACLU as well about the ACLU's position in that case. The ACLU famously lost 15% of our members 
over that case. I mean, it was an easy winner in the courts of law, upholding all the way to the United States Supreme Court, the classic viewpoint neutrality principle. But it was a real loser in the court of public opinion. So I am, needless to say, going back to the 70s, been advocating and writing and speaking the classic First Amendment position and also advocating that it was appropriate for the ACLU to be defending that position, even though its the speech is completely antithetical to our own civil libertarian ideals. But it became clear to me in 2014 and subsequent years that we had, I and others who were advocating that position, clearly had not done a sufficiently effective or persuasive job. And I knew that we had a lot more evidence that had developed recently as so many other countries have adopted and enforced laws against hate speech. So I really threw myself into the project, hopefully open-mindedly. That was my aspiration because the title of the book is Hate, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship. So my bottom line goal is to resist hatred and discrimination and stereotyping. And I oppose censorship because I continue to believe that it is not effective, let alone necessary and the least restrictive alternative for suppressing hate. And one of the reviewers of the book said, you know, it's very clear that I didn't say this expressly in the book. I'm not sure if I, how expressly I acknowledge it to myself, but I completely agreed with a reviewer who said it's very clear that Strassen is targeting her arguments at liberals and progressives and young people in particular. And I, you know, that's probably right because so many conservatives have advocated for free speech. I take that with a grain of salt as I do with, with everybody because they've been on the receiving end of censorship on campus. Given the leftward tilt of campuses, they tend to be more outspoken in support of free speech for controversial speech. But. We all know that there are many examples of speech restrictive measures, including state legislation that is supported by conservatives when it's targeting ideas that they dislike. But I think one point that I really stressed in my book, David, which I've already alluded to, which I hope would be persuasive to the progressive activists who are advocating for human rights, I cited so many examples from countries around the world of human rights activists who oppose hate speech restrictions, not at all because of free speech concerns, since the free speech law in their country is compatible with the hate speech laws, but solely from the perspective of the ineffectiveness of these laws in actually dealing with the underlying problems of hateful discriminatory attitudes, not to mention hateful discriminatory conduct. So in the book, you seem to draw this distinction between hate speech and then harm. And I think your argument is suppressing the speech is not going to prevent the harm and is often ineffective or counterproductive. But what about the argument made by some that the speech itself is the harm, that when a Kristen Wagner goes to Yale Law School or a Kyle Duncan goes to Stanford, and this person who has hateful views, who's opposed to marriage equality, who's opposed to the rights of transgender persons, 
When this person is in that law school and is speaking, is given a podium, is given a platform, is given the legitimation, is given the ability to put on their resume or on their webpage, I spoke at Stanford, I spoke at Yale. Is that not itself the harm? And this distinction you try to draw between speech and harm is sort of illusory because the speech is the harm? Two points, David, and they're both fairly complicated, so it may take a while to answer. Because to me, the most potent argument that speech is harm is slightly different from the direction you went. So I want to make sure it's consistent with your interest. And that is that the very fact of the speech itself being uttered and being heard causes an adverse psychological, emotional impact on the listener. That's the argument I'm trying to make, yes. Yeah, and I see that as a very powerful argument and one that I have debated or discussed in most detail with my former ACLU colleague, John Powell, who is the head of the Center on Belonging at the University of California, Berkeley. And Berkeley Law School, I guess what it's called now, right? And John cites studies that show that or that allegedly show, I would say that allegedly about everything. I haven't read the studies, let alone analyze them, that certain words and certain expressions or the expression of certain ideas will have a demonstrable physiological impact as well, including, you know, increasing blood pressure and so forth. So that's one argument which I take very seriously and I will respond to. But then you made to me a separate point about whether speakers such as Kyle Duncan or Kristen Wagoner should not be invited to speak at prominent at any law school because it's validating their ideas. So, you know, maybe there's an overlap and interconnection. Well, we can take them one at a time. Let me start, because it's a direct personal interest, let me start with Kristen Wagner. I don't know Kyle Duncan, and I don't know if you know that I went back. Kristen Wagner went back to Yale Law School in January of this year. And, you know, to bring folks up to date, she is both general counsel and executive director of Alliance Defending Freedom, ADF, which is an explicitly Christian conservative organization. I was very happy to accept the invitation to be the liberal who shared the platform with Kristen Wagner in a reincarnation. Can I say that in this context? A reincarnation, (laughs) the debate that had been disrupted at Yale Law School the year before, where the liberal counterpart was the head of the American Humanist Association. I don't know why I was invited instead, but I was very happy to accept that invitation in large part because I really believe in civil discourse and exposing students to different points of view. And because I thought that there was a very serious argument grounded in very plausible interpretations of the applicable constitutional principles that Christian Wagner and the ADF were presenting in that case. This event was organized by the Federal Society, but it was moderated by Professor Robert Post, former dean of the Yale Law School, who is a faculty advisor for the American Constitution Society. And there were many ACS students there, I was told, by the FedStock students and, you know, others who were not members of either group, very well attended and respectful. And I 
I was told that a lot of students really had their minds opened about Kristen and her ability, first of all, her thoughtfulness, her concern, including about non-discrimination issues, and her ability as an advocate, both in that forum and in the briefs. So I thought that was a fabulous educational experience. I understand what you were just saying about how this event was valuable and you have sort of an instrumentalist, pragmatic argument in favor of hearing out and engaging with the Christian Wagoners of the world. But what about the argument that to even share the stage with her is to say that her ideas are within the so-called Overton window or is to say that she's a worthwhile person to be discussing things with? I think a lot of people who are her critics would say that you should not legitimate her by participating in events with her. That would be their argument. I completely agree with the principle, David. And here's the principle that's at stake. When you have a limited forum in the sense that, you know, it's not a public park where, you know, everybody can come and say whatever they want, but there are limited opportunities, a finite number of speakers that you can invite. There should be a legitimate pedagogical justification for each speaker. Now, if a school has a policy that just says we're going to allow any student group to invite anybody, well, that's their choice. I I don't think it's the best pedagogical approach. So I would certainly support a policy that said there has to be a legitimate pedagogical justification for every speaker. And, and you know, I wouldn't enforce it too toughly because you don't want it to become a pretext for viewpoint discrimination. But I could see a faculty advisor saying to a group, you know, don't invite Milo, you know, he has nothing substantive to say, but put Kristen Wagner, you know, in a different category. And, you know, the example I like to use is Donald Trump. You know, you can hate his ideas and his policies. Certainly the ACLU has had a record number of lawsuits, many of them successful against his policies. But he no doubt is in playing or was playing and still is playing an important role in public debate and has a major impact. That in itself, to me, is a legitimate justification, more than legitimate justification for exposing students to the ideas. So I accept the criteria, but I think that they are being applied as a pretext for excluding certain unpopular ideas from campus. Now, you know, on the other issue about the emotional harm from yes. speech, I think that's really, I do not deny it. This, much more importantly, the Supreme Court itself does not deny it. In Snyder versus Phelps in 2011, which was one of a number of recent cases in which the Supreme Court, by overwhelming votes, has struck down restrictions on hateful speech. This was the one involving the Westboro Baptist Church website with trigger warning, www.godhatesfags.org. But in fairness, you know, they thought God hated everybody. They were having these protests outside funerals for slain members of the military against the U.S. military, against the Catholic Church, against, you know, all kinds of people in addition to LGBTQ people. And the Supreme Court overturned the imposition of damages for intentional infliction of emotional distress. And the court stressed twice that it was not denying the harm 
that was allegedly caused by the speech. Then they actually quoted the expert witness in support of the plaintiff, who was the father of this slain member of the military, Matthew Snyder, who testified that the knowing that this speech had taken place increased some underlying health problems, exacerbated anxiety, depression, caused sleeplessness, which in turn had some adverse health impacts. And the court basically said, you know, of course, speech does great harm, can do great harm. And that is exactly why we protect it. We protect speech because of its enormous power. And that power can be used for great harm as well as for great good. Now, the way I would paraphrase or summarize where I come out on this, David, is harmful as speech definitely can be, that it is even more harmful to empower government with discretionary power to punish speech on inherently subjective grounds such as emotional distress or hatefulness or disinformation or extremism. And here, let me interject a point that's just not nearly as well known as it should be. Notwithstanding the strong speech protective interpretation that the modern Supreme Court since the second half of the 20th century has given to the First Amendment, the First Amendment does allow government to outlaw this speech that is the most harmful and the most dangerous, while it also outlaws the censorship that is the most dangerous. You know, the more I get into the weeds of First Amendment law, the more respect I have for it as according with common sense. So if the speech poses, and this is often summarized as and by the emergency concept, if the speech directly, imminently causes or even threatens to cause certain specific serious harm, then it may be punished. And a lot of hateful speech and a lot of other controversial speech actually satisfies the standards demanding as they are. You know, I think for hate speech, the quintessential example that people have in mind when they say, oh, we should allow government to censor hate speech is a racist epithet that's directly hurled by one person to another one or to a small group of people. You know, but our law does not allow speech to be punished solely because its viewpoint is hateful or hated, right? That's the viewpoint neutrality principle. But when you look at the speech in a particular context and all the facts and circumstances, if it satisfies the emergency principle, it can be punished. And in that context, a racist slur that is directly hurled at another person is very likely to satisfy a number of categories of the emergency principle, including so-called fighting words, targeted harassment or bullying, might even be a true threat, depending on the context. It might even be intentional incitement of imminent violence. And then you look at the censorship that's the most dangerous, and that's when you give the government more latitude and more discretion, either on the ground that the idea itself is objectionable or that it's got an indirect, potential, speculative connection to harm. And predictably, that added discretion is used by the powers that be against speech that is critical of them, that is inconsistent 
with the existing powers. And that's why I find it so odd that people would argue that it's members of minority groups that have the greatest stake in suppressing hate speech because predictably they're going to be on the wrong end of these hate speech laws. And no matter how they're dressed up, including under the guise of intentional incitement of emotional distress. So that's interesting. I think the point you're making about how not all speech is protected, this is an important one because even the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, which is an organization we are both involved with and support, it, you know, it says that, well, if it is constitutionally or legally protected, we will stand up for it. But if it's not constitutionally or legally protected, well, then that's a different story. So I think even you, who I think would be the closest someone would say to a free speech absolutist, I mean, even you recognize the legal or constitutional limits. Especially so, David. And I think one of the things I learned when I was doing research for my hate speech book was I was kind of surprised at all of the completely defensible limits on free speech and how many of them applied to hate speech. And by the way, I wasn't defending First Amendment principles per se. I have my own concept of what I think protected free speech should be. And I was, you know, I think that the First Amendment, at least the modern First Amendment jurisprudence has largely overlapped with that. And I actually ended up having a whole chapter in the book that was on permissible limits on hate speech. Speech. My dear friend Floyd Abrams was a little bit nervous when he saw this, but I think, you know, he and others ultimately understood that part of what will make people more supportive of First Amendment jurisprudence and free speech principles more broadly is if they understand, and here's my way of summarizing, and I'll repeat it, that it does empower government to outlaw the speech that is the most dangerous, that is the most harmful, but it outlaws the censorship that is the most harmful. So I don't need to repeat myself, but I think the term free speech absolutist is a misnomer. And it's one of the, so I don't mean to be overly critical of you, it's a very common phrase, but I think when people attack First Amendment law and attack free speech, they are really attacking a caricatured, distorted version of what the law actually is. I told you, David, you know, wearing my hat says educator on one hand and advocate on the other hand, I do make a distinction, but there is in honesty an overlap because the more information people have, about the actual holdings and contours of First Amendment law, the more supportive they become. No doubt about it. And I've actually seen some studies now that are demonstrating that. So, and yes, I should mention, I was kind of using that chance little bit in quotes a little bit, but let me ask okay. you just one last question before we go to the speed run. So just to clarify your earlier comments. So on the argument that speech is or can be harm, it sounds like you do acknowledge that speech can be harm even speech just itself, but that often the remedy is or the cure is worse than the disease, perhaps? That's exactly true. And I would add one other point to that, which is that people who focus specifically on the remedy, what is an effective remedy, namely psychologists and mental health experts, have strongly argued based on evidence and studies that 
the more effective way to deal with that kind of harm is through cognitive behavioral therapy and other techniques of increasing people's self-confidence and resilience and resourcefulness in coping with ideas that are distressing. And many psychological experts, certainly including John Haidt, co-author of The Coddling of the American Mind, but many others as well, that it actually is more harmful to individuals, including students' mental health, psychological well-being, to constantly drum into them that these words are upsetting, that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And, you know, many of them have said, you know, people can hurt you through words only if you give them permission to do so. So, you know, those on the other side of these discussions will constantly say, oh, that old saying about sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me is wrong. Of course it's wrong. It's not true that words will never hurt you. But it's also not true that words will always hurt you. And it is true that there's a lot that we can do, which is the opposite of censorship, to make it more likely that words will not hurt you. Now, oh, sorry, I can't resist. One last argument or rebuttal. The defenders of the censorship or the shoutdowns on campuses would say, well, when you talk about, say, the cognitive behavioral therapy or what have you, aren't you making the victims, quote unquote, do the work? Aren't you making the victims have to go to the therapy sessions, for example, when they shouldn't have to go to the therapy in the first place if we had barred the hateful speakers from campus? Thank you very much, David, because I'm very concerned about not doing anything that is, in effect, blaming the victims or putting burdens on them. What I would want to do is to provide resources and opportunities of which everybody can avail themselves so that they do not become victims. And here, you know, you really give me an opportunity to make another point. As a result of my research so far, I haven't changed my views profoundly, but I've refined them in substantial ways. And one of the ways is having a much more robust proactive concept of meaningful free speech. My colleague Sigal Ben-Parath at the University of Pennsylvania coined a term which I like very much, inclusive freedom. That is not enough just to bar censorship, but we really want to make free speech a meaningful reality for everybody. And that means going beyond the law in a number of ways, but certainly, especially for those who have been underprivileged in terms of education and technology and other psychological resources to really enable a vigorous exercise of their free speech rights, it becomes our responsibility as educators and as a society to make those opportunities, meaningful free speech opportunities, as equally available as possible. I would say that about all human rights, but certainly about free speech. That's great. That's wonderful. And I think it is really helpful to have such a nuanced discussion of these issues at a very granular level. So now turning to the final four questions I ask to all of my interviewees and they're standard. My first question is, what do you like the least about the law? And this can either be the practice of law or law as that abstract system that articulates our rights and responsibilities. 
as a nice coincidence, that last question and answer really segued into this. Because <laughs> I think that what I like least about the law, David, is that how it becomes a crutch, not only for so many lawyers, but so many of them are dominant in our political system, that every problem is seen as a legal problem that's going to be solved by the law. And that's certainly true for free speech from both perspectives, just as, you know, passing a law against hate speech is not going to do anything meaningful to address the hateful attitudes or to provide the resilience for the students or others who might be subject to hateful speech. It's also not true that a robust First Amendment free speech law is going to do enough to create meaningful free speech experiences on campus and beyond when we have so-called cancel culture, for lack of a better word. So I think law can be very useful, but when it stops us from exploring other solutions to problems that are much more complex, you know, let me quote Mark Twain, who said that if the only tool you have is a hammer, then every problem looks like a nail. And I think with so many lawyers being so dumb dominant in our political and policy discussions and our governmental bodies, too many problems look like legal problems and to be solved by law. That's a great response. I totally agree with it. My second point is, what would you be if you were not a lawyer? I'm not sure whether that allows me to speculate about talents that I don't have or <laughs> it's with the existing person that I am. If I can ha- do anything in the world and had enough talent to do it, I would be a stand-up comic. Because to me, <laughs> the ultimate, you know, wonderful use of free speech. With the more limited talents that I do have, I would be a performer, and I use that word deliberately, of audible books, of recorded books, because I love to read. I love the theater and I've been subscribing to Audible. I've got like 2,000 books in my Audible (laughs) library. And I did have the opportunity, which I created. I had to audition, but I wanted to perform my book on hate speech. And I passed the audition and I absolutely loved it. So I read all the time. I would like to pick the books that I want to read and perform them for the benefit of others. My third question is, how much sleep do you get each night? I get much more now than I got as a younger person. I think I'm making up for lost time. For my middle age years, I was sleeping only four hours a night. And as I've gotten older, I keep reading that one of the indicia or correlates with longevity is sleeping at least eight hours a night. I can manage about seven. (laughs) Well, seven is not bad, not bad. My final question is, any final words of wisdom, such as career advice or life advice for my listeners? I like to pass on advice from one of my heroes and friends, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I knew her quite well, but until I wrote something about her, this was a little gem that I had never known. And I think it's just wonderful advice, which I've implemented in other ways myself. And that is to always take an affirmative approach, to always take a positive approach. David, you and I see it in organizations such as FIRE, Heterodox Academy, which are never critical of universities, are always trying to help campuses become the best that they can to live up to their ideals. And I was really surprised to learn that Ruth, as I called her, always had that approach toward briefs when she was a lawyer and toward opinions when she was a justice, that she would always write out 
her version of what she thought the right argument was, what the right opinion was, without first looking at the brief on the other side, or if she was writing a dissent, looking at the majority opinion, that first you state your own case affirmatively in the, you know, make the most powerful positive case you can, and only then go look at what the other side has said and make adjustments accordingly. Well, I think that's a great note to end on because I think throughout your career and your scholarship and your advocacy, you have been taking that affirmative approach. Nadine, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure, David. Thank you so much. Thanks so much to Nadine for joining me and for all her work over the years in defense of free speech and civil liberties. She has exerted great influence over how I think about these issues, and it was both an honor and a pleasure to speak with her. Thanks to Nextfirm for sponsoring this episode of the Original Jurisdiction podcast. Nextfirm has helped many attorneys to leave big law and launch firms of their own. If you would like to explore this opportunity, Contact Nextfirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com to learn more. Thanks to Tommy Harron, my sound engineer here at Original Jurisdiction. And thanks to you, my listeners and readers, for tuning in. If you'd like to connect with me, you can email me at davidlatt at substack.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at David Latt and on Instagram at David Benjamin Latt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. Please subscribe to the Original Jurisdiction newsletter if you don't already over at davidlatt.substack.com. This podcast is free, as is most of the newsletter content, but it is made possible by paid subscriptions to the newsletter. The next episode of the podcast should appear two weeks from now, on or about Wednesday, May 31. Until then, may your thinking be original and your jurisdiction free of defects. <laughs>